Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. Sick care. We have existed in a model that is a sick care hospital-centric model. And that makes zero sense. Thanks for joining us on This Week Health Keynote. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to our keynote show sponsors, Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris and Veritas for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Keynote, we have Dr. Stephen Clasco, executive in residence at General Catalyst and former president and CEO of Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health. Dr. Clasco, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's, uh, it's really great to be on again, and especially you know now that I'm transitioning into the netherworld of a, a very different type thing than we talked last time. Yeah, it is. So... Executive in residence for General Catalyst and uh, Hey Montanasia, that the, the whole group is doing some great work around health assurance. Uh, give us an understanding of, of what you're doing in that new role and really the thesis for the work. Yeah, so, well, it really started out with a book that, that Haymont and I wrote called Unhealthcare, a Manifesto for Health Assurance. And it actually began with what if a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and a CEO of 195-year-old academic medical center had a baby? What would that look like? How do you bring the move fast and break things type world of, of traditional VC uh, world to, to the uh, we improve lives and nonprofit, much slower world? And we had had a, some really good work done in my previous roles. And what really hit me about what what Haymont and the team at GC want to do is get away from the, we're just going to acquire point solutions, the, the Lovangos of the world and that kind of thing to, to unscale. We're actually going to create an ecosystem that can actually start to transform healthcare, you know, what we're calling responsible innovation. And the best way to look at it is if we knew that during the industrial revolution, the internal combustion engine might cause climate change, we might've made some changes. If we knew that the social media revolution and Mark Zuckerberg wasn't just so I could see my unbelievably cute grandkids in Providence when I'm not there, but it could affect elections and spew hate. We might be in a very different situation. So what we've really tried to look at is how can we invest our dollars in, in, in entities that are going to turn things like population health, predictive analytics, social determinants from philosophy to the mainstream of clinical care and payment models. So if you look at the folks that they brought in, People like Robin Washington, who have been the CFO of Gilead, uh, myself, Ken Frazier, the former CEO of, of Merck, a woman named Elena Weibach in the life sciences side. So just one example of a company I'm going on the, on, on the board of uh, that we acquired is looking at how can we revolutionize clinical trials? Right now, clinical trials are stuck in the 90s. And a lot of times, African-American folks and, and Latino folks don't always get to them. We can now comb through an EMR and say, for this particular trial, Bill Russell is perfect and, and reach out to you type thing. So, so those are the kind of things that we're looking at that can start to create this ecosystem that defragments healthcare, hopefully in the United States and beyond. Three things came up in your book. And when I read the 
press release of you joining the company. They talk about transforming the healthcare experience, sick care to well care, reduce the cost of healthcare, and do it in a way that doesn't leave anyone behind. So health equities and those kinds of things. So is that the framework for the investments and what really brings together health assurance? Yeah. So, so the whole, look, the whole idea of health assurance is getting out of this either or model or even talking about things like telehealth, right? I mean, I, I remember I'm a distinguished fellow of the World Economic Forum, and I had a cup of coffee with one of the CEOs of one of the, the major finance institutions in, in the world. And he was talking to me, he said, 40 years ago, the two sectors that escaped the consumer revolution were banking and healthcare. And they took a sip of his coffee and said, now you're alone. <laughs> so so the, the idea behind health assurance is getting away from talking about, oh, we do telehealth or we, uh, we, we did Livongo. And we don't get up in the morning and say, I think on a telebank. It's just that banking went from this model if you're my age, that 30 years ago was just ridiculously like difficult. Nine, nine to four on Mondays to, to Thursdays and 10 to seven on Fridays to one which is actually really convenient now, right? And every other sector has gone that way. And there's still banks. So, so I, I always say in, in my traditional role of healthcare, I want it to be Target or Walmart. And what I mean by that is, when Amazon disrupted that industry, you think about it, some people said, oh my God, nobody's ever going to a store again. Let's think Circuit City, and they tried to be all E and failed. Sears and Penny said, boy, what a stupid idea. People love, love, love the day after Thanksgiving, parking 10 miles away and fighting over Cabbage Patch dolls. That'll never make it. Well, talking to Walmart said, we're damn good at what we do, but we also have to compete in that space. And so I think, I think that the idea behind health assurance is, I'll put it in sort of a simple sentence. I, I want to get away from those of us in, in the healthcare industry thinking about patients. 97% of people in this country do not wake up and say, I'm a patient. They might have congestive heart failure. They might have cancer. They might have diabetes. They might have one of any chronic diseases. But they say, actually, I'm a person that would love to be able to thrive without health getting in the way. They're also not a consumer either. Yeah, I don't like to go that way either. And it's interesting you say that because um, I talk a lot about consumer segmentation and, and it's sort of the wrong word. But, you know, my brain explodes when I see a billboard that says, Pleasantville General Hospital, we are patient-centered. And like, what does that mean? Are you patient-centered for somebody like me as a 68-year-old with five wearables or a 29-year-old, you know, disengaged person or a 75-year-old? that only goes on Facebook to see their, their kids. I mean, so we know our, our patients are not consumers, but we need to think of the way in some respects that some of the consumer companies have as far as how do we get out to them. But they are people. And I think, it, look, Lovango became an $18.4 billion company, basically doing one thing. Right. And, diabetes. You know, Glenn will tell you that diabetes, but saying, look, Steve, you can only think of them as patients. You can only say, come to my ER, come to my urgent care center, come to my office, come to my hospital. That's not what a diabetic wants to do for the rest of their life. What they really want is an invisible friend that can be with them, that can help them so that they can, you know, do their normal lifestyle. That's what they did. And, and, and if you think about a lot of these things, they're all things that we could do. 
right? It really, frankly, upsets me that we've created, we've allowed the Oak Streets of the world and the Chen Meds of the world and the Lobangos of the world to literally create these huge companies that, that we could have done. I mean, when I think about telehealth, and part of the reason I think some of the telehealth stocks are going down is you know, it's, it's a commodity, right? I mean, it's my patients, my doctors, and you're going to create a five, 10, $15 billion company being the FaceTime between my patients and my doctors. Why didn't I hire you to do it and create that company? And in some respects, that's what Jefferson did back in 2013 when we created JeffConnect. We said, we'll use American Well, we'll use Teladoc, but we're not going to basically vend that out to anybody. Yeah, we are patient centric is, is pretty interesting because we, we do compare ourselves as providers, right? So we look at each other and go, well, Jefferson's more advanced than whoever's down the street, than this health system or whatever. But the reality is when we pigeonhole ourselves and say we're patient centric, we're essentially saying we, we care about you from the point you become a patient until the point we discharge you. And all the points in between, we wish you well. But really, unless you're coming in and paying us or unless you're coming in and seeing our doctors, our relationship is kind of stilted. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, that's going to get worse because, look, I mean, there's what's the one word that comes out of everybody's mouth about the future? Data. Data. We need data. Right. Data. I get tired of hearing that. OK, well, we're up to our patootin data. It's just actionable data. And what what. Folks from CVS and with folks from other, other parts will say, look, you guys are clueless. Steve, you run 18 hospitals. You only know what happens when somebody comes to your hospital. If you, if you communicate with your primary care docs, maybe you know what happens then. We're CVS. <laughs> you, we, we, know, we know if the person uses glasses. We know if the person buys condoms. We know, what, you know that they buy 10 candy bars a, a month. And now there's other, other folks that are taking the consumer data world and bringing that in. So, so I think you're right. It's that sick care. We have existed in a model that is a sick care hospital-centric model. And, and that, that makes zero sense. When I was the CEO of Jefferson in December, if you walked into my office, there was a sign that says, when, when Elon Musk brings folks from Mars to Philadelphia and they say, where's Jefferson? I hope five years from now, you can't, you can't define that. You mean Jefferson... My phone, Jefferson on my TV, Jefferson at home, Jefferson 12 micro hospitals. Oh, you mean the place where really, 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 really sick people go? I think that's still 10th and Walnut. The fact that we are defined by where our sickest patients go, the fact that we're defined by, in essence, when we fail to keep people healthy, is really partly what's wrong with, with the American healthcare system. So, how is your work different from the executive in residence to the CEO chair? Contrast those two. Yeah, well, I have a couple of jobs. I'm sort of the ultimate post-pandemic worker because I live in Miami and Chicago. And my two employers are Palo Alto and Israel. My other employer is I'm, I'm the head of global innovation and the North American ambassador for Sheba Medical Center, which is the number 10 hospital in the world based out of, um, based out of Tel Aviv. And, and we're building these incubators in Chicago and, and Jersey City. So I think the biggest difference is, you know, frankly, I got a little tired of being called a disruptor in the traditional, running a traditional health system. I mean, Jefferson did fantastic things. I had spent some time at Apple in the pre-iPhone era, and Steve Jobs used to talk about the old math and the new math. The old math was computers and operating systems. The new math was this thing called a digital lifestyle. 
I shamelessly stole that when I came to Jefferson 2013 and said our old math is inpatient revenue, outpatient revenue, in-person tuition, and NIH funding. The new math is going to be strategic partnerships around this healthcare at any address model. And I think that, you know, the fact is that the pandemic just proved that. I mean, I mean just today, they were talking about our largest insurer in Philadelphia quadrupled their net operating income something like $813 million. They didn't do anything amazing. <laughs> they just basically had convinced the employers, it's not their fault, but that, in, that this, is, this is how much money we'd expend on elective stuff. And interestingly, where they made their most money was from Medicaid. So, so basically, think about this. This team is going to get their top bonus because people in Medicaid didn't go and get mammograms and, and procedures that they would have to pay for. Now, that, if, if, if you need a better example of how messed up our system is, that the hospital industry probably lost several hundred billion dollars in the insurance industry. And by the way, it's, it's not their fault. That's the model, the MLR model. By the way, they would say 10 years ago, you used to hold us hostage by saying, if you don't give me 5% more to become 10% more inefficient, we won't put you in our panel. So it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, the fact is, uh, let me give you one other example. One of my mentors wrote a book, a guy named Bill Kissick at Wharton, when I went to Wharton, called Medicine's Dilemmas, Infinite Needs, Finite Resources. Okay. He said, he was the first guy to talk about the iron triangle of access, quality, and cost. You increase one angle, you decrease another. He said 40 years ago, anybody tells you going to increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and it's not going to be painful and disruptive, they're not telling the truth. So if you think about health policy bill in this last 12 years, President Obama said, good news, the ACA will increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and it won't be painful. President Trump said, mine will be fantastic, terrific, unbelievable, <laughs> and really huge, and it was none of the four. So the fact is that, you know, it's all a lie. And if you think about the ACA, it's like, oh, we got to bring a dollar and a quarter to a dollar to give more people uh, access. What's the first stocks you would have bought if you followed other sectors that are disrupted? You would have sold things like United. You would have sold things like supply chains like J&J and Merck. And the fact is that would have been a huge mistake because other than Apple, maybe the best stock since the ACA was United. Now, how can a middleman stock go up that much <laughs> if you're trying to decrease costs? So some of this stuff is just logic. And, and the fact that it was viewed as e either transformative, revolutionary, disruptive, depending on whether or not you liked it, it's just really just looking at it with a mirror. We'll get to our show in just a minute. As you've probably heard, we've launched a new show, Town Hall, on our community channel, This Week Health Community, and it airs on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'll be taking a back seat to some of these people who are on the front lines. Town Hall is hosted by an array of talented healthcare leaders who are facing today's challenges head on. We're going to hear from professionals and their networks on hot button issues, technical deep dives, and the tactical challenges that healthcare faces we have some great hosts on this. We have Charles Boise and Angelique Russell, data scientists, Craig Richerfield, Lee Milligan, Reed Steffen, who are all CIOs. We have Jake Lancaster and Brett Oliver, who are CMIOs, and Matt Sickles, a cybersecurity first responder. I'd love to have you listen to these episodes. You can subscribe on our community channel, This Week Health Community, wherever you find and listen to podcasts. Now, let's get to the show. The only word I can come up with is inertia. 
right? There's a ton of inertia in this system. And so now you're looking at general catalyst is disrupting. Let's, let's not say from the outside. I mean, because there's some, there's some strong, when you look at some of the investments, there's some people who've been in the industry for a while, really understand it. They're just coming at it from different, different perspectives and, and different, uh, different models than we've done in the past. How do we overcome the inertia that exists within the system? Is it policy? Is it, is it leadership? What is it? I look at it a lot like the New Orleans levees before Hurricane Katrina. Like for 20 years, everybody knew that that was going to break. And, you know, it did. And while nobody was surprised, it was, oh my God, look what happened. I think we're really in that point in American healthcare. We don't take care of behavioral health. We're, we're spending more money for okay outcomes. We have the best healthcare system for 15% of the population, that kind of thing. So I think, look, I think GC certainly isn't going to solve it, but I think the difference in the GC model, and and I think other, other VCs and founders are coming up with the same kind of thing is how do we democratize this? How, how do we, one of the companies I'm really excited about that we've invested in is called Eleanor Health. And it's basically, it's looked at substance use issues. Like instead of ignoring it, instead of saying, that's not my issue, I'm a, I run a hospital. It's how do we get at the root cause of substance use issues? How can we take a combination of tech and humans to really help, help solve this before that person gets under the bridge and is injecting themselves with heroin or getting killed? And so I think, I think that the fact is that I really do believe that we'll start to have the bow break. We can't keep spending more and more and more and more money. We're a $4 trillion industry. That I used to say that that's the entire economy of Russia, but I guess that's probably, that's, we're probably a lot more than the economy of Russia today. But, but the fact is we're a $4 trillion industry and we have to get over this myth that we have the best healthcare system in the world, right? I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm an obstetrician, Bill, and we spend about three or four times more per obstetric patient than any other country in the world. And you say, oh, well, our outcomes must be the best. Now, our outcomes are somewhere between like Serbia and Croatia. I mean, 19 or 20. Why? My daughter got pregnant during the pandemic. And she said, she had to go three times a week to get a non-stress test. She said, dad, I had to spend $35 to park three times a week. I had to go to a place with a lot of sick people. Somebody put a monitor on me so I could stare at the ceiling. I thought you were the digital dude. Can't we take care of that? Well, the fact is I was on the board of a remote obstetric monitoring company out of Israel, but it hasn't happened in the United States yet. Why? Because hospitals get paid a lot of money to have people come to the hospital. So it's hard to get somebody to do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it. And then we have this ridiculous malpractice situation where the first obstetric patient I monitor at home that 17 years from now doesn't get into Princeton, I'm going to get sued. So some of the things that work in other countries can't work here because we have this almost impossible system that just promotes literally this sick care, high fixed cost model. So until, until literally we start to change that. Now, one way to change that is what we did at Jefferson, where we acquired a Medicaid and Medicare Advantage insurance company. So now all of a sudden, $2 billion of my income is based on that first dollar premium and getting out to that patient's home and hiring a handyman to fix the mold in her house made a lot more sense than having her come to the ER every three months with asthma. When you start to look at it that way and bringing in those kind of people into my cabinet, the other thing we did is 
we actually brought somebody from GC into a company that we co-owned and that person was on my cabinet. So all of a sudden my cabinet, it was no longer a bunch of hospital people. It's a Medicaid and Medicare insurance person. It's a basically a, a tech person that's used to moving things out to the home. And you get a very different discussion in your cabinet. Let's talk the, the focusing in on one of those things. Let's talk cost of healthcare. So still the greatest source of bankruptcy in America is healthcare related costs. Now we have, I guess, as of yesterday, eight and a half percent inflation on top of that. And the average American is looking for relief in a lot of different areas, not not the least of which is at the gas pump and everywhere else. Are, are they going to find it from healthcare providers or is it going to be a new kind of model or are they just going to continue to defer care because they just can't afford it? Here's what I think will happen. I, I really do believe that, that. So first of all, the average CEO of a place that I was CEO of, five to $10 billion, you know, large health system is, is 67, 68. I'm 68. Okay. Unlike me, the average CEO is sort of just trying to hang on to the limb of how things were done before till they reach their LTR at age 70. So one of the things that you're going to, you're going to find is this whole group of new CEOs that I think will be more diverse. I think might come from different industries. And I think they'll, they'll look at this and say, Oh my God, like, 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 why are we here? So I think that's my optimistic point of view, where folks will say, well, this can't be. Second thing I think that'll happen is you will have to have payer provider alignment. It doesn't mean that every provider will own a payer or vice versa, but I think you're going to start to see more strategic partnerships between maybe a single or two payers and a provider that then start to create some of those, some of those synergies. The third thing I think is going to happen is that you're, you're going to have well, we don't like the word consumer, but you know the people are going to have their own mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. In a moment, I'm going to give you a, just one real example. I started a company that's doing a Match.com between obstetricians and patients. So, Bill, it used to be when I was in private practice 30 years ago, a 28-year-old woman would be late for a period. She'd go to her 65-year-old male primary care doc and say, "Congratulations, Mrs. Jones, you're pregnant. I'm sending you to my obstetrician, Dr. Clasco." She'd say, "Thank you." Now. If you have any 28-year-old children or whatever, the chance that a 28-year-old would now say, sure, 65-year-old guy, for the most important point thing in my life, I will definitely go to the person you play golf with or happens to be in your system or whatever other reason you're sending me to them. No, I think I'll go you know, and talk to my friends and go on the metaverse and do virtual reality stuff and that kind of thing. So now what, what, what we've looked at is, okay, I'm Mrs. Jones. I live in Brimmore, Pennsylvania. I'm looking for a predominantly female group within 15 miles of me. I'd like them to accept my doula. I work at Comcast. I can only get off on Fridays. And I bet in the gold. I don't want to pay more than a thousand dollar deductible. Oh, and I'll send you my HIPAA compliant records. Oh, and by the way, I'd, I'd like to get your C-section rate, any quality data. And by the way, you don't have to send that to me. I met my wife on match.com. You don't have to put your picture on, but there's usually an assumption if you didn't put your picture on, there was a reason. And I'll assume you didn't, you didn't want to give me your data. Okay. Now, when I, when I go around the country and talk about that, I get, there's nobody in the middle. I either get doctors saying, oh my God, this is the end of healthcare as we know it. You are truly, truly, you came from you know, the netherworld to kill healthcare. And I get another group of obstetricians say, wow, this is really great. Where do I join? And there's a huge age and gender difference between A and B. 
So what gives me optimism is that the folks that are going to become the new doctors, nurses, and healthcare workers, in some cases employers, that grew up in a world that was very sort of, why can't I do this at home and why can't it be more efficient, are not going to tolerate uh, that piece. And what are, where I think we'll get smart is, wait, why are we allowing the Oak Streets and the Chen Meds and the Lavangos and the Teladocs to, to become... 10, 20, 30 billion dollar companies. They laugh in my new world, you know, it, it's laughable that Jefferson views their competitors' pen. And by, by the way, if, if I was trying to come say, yeah, yeah, you, you, you're right, that you have to hate them. But don't, there's nothing to see here with Oak Street taking all the patients that can pay or, or Chen Med or Oscar or, you know, don't, don't worry about them. But you you go after Penn or Penn, you go after Jefferson, right? It's like Sears going after pennies. We're not worried about Target, Walmart or Amazon. We're going to beat pennies. And that's what we do. So I think I think that I think that that the, 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 the external environment will converge. There will be some places and. I wasn't the only one. I call it a consortium of the willing. I'm finding more and more folks when I was CEO of Jefferson that were looking at these strategic partnerships differently. So I think you'll start to see that. And the one thing we have to change in this country is we have to let health systems fail. You know, bad health systems that are expensive need to fail. We're not a market-driven economy. And, and it's one thing if you're in a rural area, totally different ballgame. But you know, we have 43 hospitals in Philadelphia. We have two that have gone bankrupt. Each one, it was like they, it's like a fish out of water. They kept throwing it back in the water. They needed to go bankrupt. And there's probably a couple other that need to go bankrupt that are low leapfrogs, high cost. And once you get into that market-driven world, now I know that, that, that the new head of DHHS does not like consolidation. And there's been some, some negative things of consolidation as far as pricing. But I would argue that Jefferson going from a $2 billion to a $9 billion entity from a, a one hospital to an 18 hospital entity with the hospitals that we brought in, you know, they've all gone up in quality. I do not believe our cost has increased. So I think we have to relook at consolidation a little bit differently. So gosh, I, I could go in a bunch of different directions. I, I do want to talk about the modern healthcare provider CEO role. I do want to talk about education. Towards the end of this, I want to get to your current soundtrack for healthcare today. But let's start with the healthcare provider, the CEO. Do they have to be fluent in digital technology? Do they have to be fluent in VC in those kinds of transactions? And what will the next generation of healthcare provider CEOs look like? I think the first thing is it needs to be almost 180 degrees from what it was, right? The concept of I build an academic career, you know, I have a 100-page CV, so I'm going to be a good CEO is just asinine. Similarly, I've got an MHA, so I can open up the spreadsheets, is similarly asinine. So we're the only sector where you have to have like been an NIH-funded researcher or a great clinician to be the CEO, right? I mean, I mean, you know, right, the head of GM doesn't necessarily have to build cars or in, in, his, in his or her experience. So, so I think the key is, no, I, I don't think that somebody has to be an NIH funded researcher. I don't believe they had to have been a, a chair. And I also don't believe they have to totally understand the guts of the FHIR layer and you know why that might get us out of the tyranny of the legacy EMRs. I think what they do need to be is a, a person that can you know radically communicate, radically collaborate, and then in some respects, be radically creative about transforming a system. And 
The best advice I ever got from my head of leadership at Wharton was, Steve, you should always have five people under you that think they can do a better job than you and three that are right. And so people would be amazed, Steve, like you're the CEO of this $9 billion organization, but you don't go to the internal budget meetings or the, well, because I had a head of my 18 hospitals that was a much better head of hospitals than I was. And I had a provost of our two campus university. I'd been a provost, but it was a much better provost than I was. You know, I had a head of innovation that that's what I do. I'm a tech crunch guy, but he was better than I was at, at, at that. And I had a head of philanthropy. I'm, I'm really good at, at that. But again, she was the best at it. So, so the ability of having those four people and allow me to be the orchestra conductor and lead what's going to be obvious 10 years from now and how can Jefferson get there today and go out and do my World Economic Forum thing and go out and do my Silicon Valley thing and, and, and get new investments into Jefferson is, is what I think a good part of the new CEO will be, at least of complex organizations. Now, if you're running a single hospital, a very different ball game, you need to be a great operator. But, but for the, when we talk about the major academic medical centers or the major health systems, it just, you need to be a good leader. That's what every other sector, what every other sector has is, is what's, who's somebody that can lead us, understand the industry enough to, to lead us into a very difficult time, whether that's in hospitality or whether that's in automotive or frankly, whether that's in healthcare. I do want to touch on Walmart and Amazon and their their plays in this space and CVS for that matter and and some others. CVS is a little different because they have the payer relationship as well built into that. But I think the question is from a, an access standpoint, they have us beat hands down, right? They're they're within a couple of miles of so much of the population in the United States. Are they going to be able to start to really discern intermediate the the providers by getting in the middle of of people seeking care and then helping them to direct that care, do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. And when Haven started, okay, think about it was Amazon, JP Morgan, Berkshire. And every, every healthcare stock went down 20%. And I remember I was going to talk for like the American College of Healthcare Executives like a week later. And the first question from the audience was, well, like, Dr. Klesko, aren't you scared? Like, why are you even going to work? I mean, I told the one, clearly... In his, in his spare time after, because remember, he was still going to be a neurosurgeon. He was still, still going to write for the New Yorker. And on Tuesdays from five to, to midnight and Thursday mornings, he was going to you know, transform healthcare system. And people believe that. And I said something that ended up getting tweeted, but I said, well, frankly, to me, it's like the Loch Ness Monster. If I ever saw it, I'd probably be scared. I don't think I'm going to see it in my lifetime. So I think that the, just because you're Apple or just because you're Google, I mean, think about it. Google Health failed fail. I mean, they can call it whatever they want, but it failed. Why? Because people didn't trust Google. The, the give me all your records. I mean, that was a bridge too far for folks. You can trust me. So, tr- so number one is trust is more important than technology. And, and I think it's going to be very hard for people to want to hand over everything about themselves, their genomics and everything else to an Amazon, a Google or Apple. Secondly, I think people underestimate the complexity of healthcare and frankly, the bizarreness of healthcare, right? I mean, there was a company I was looking at that said, hey, this is really good news. I can turn credentialing from a six month process for, for insurers to like 24 hours, make it really efficient. I said, great, you will fail. Because our insurers 
when I acquire a hospital, don't want all those people in that hospital to get credentialed in 24 hours. <laughs> they want to pay them less, you know, and take longer. So you assume that that healthcare is sort of this consumer sport and and has the logic system of everything else you've done. Now, where I, I think the group that gets it is Amazon. I think Amazon Care post Haven has really said, look, you know, what you said, we, we think we can do what we, we do best, which is really work with the employer, work with the employee. If your kid has an earache and we can send somebody out to the house and, you know, take care of that so you can go to work and maybe even send a, a home health person, that's what we do really well. And I think that direct to employer piece, whether it's Amazon Care or Transparent, which is actually one of the companies that uh, GC has invested in that Glenn Tolman is founding, those are the kind of, of, of disruptors, disruptors that, that could make it. Look, Walmart can never be underestimated. I mean, I was on a panel with their CEO and look, I mean, the, the amount of people that walk into a Walmart once a week is just unbelievable. There's just no other, there's no other place in, in the world probably like that, that they can say, here's 50, 60, 70, 100 million people that walk into my place once a week and spend an hour. Okay. Well, how you think about that in a health piece and Walmart at home and Walmart's one of those places that has done a good job competing with Amazon. You'll, the best company to look at, like, wow, they went from almost being bankrupt to getting it was Best Buy. Right, right. You're gonna buy Best Buy for 23 cents because they're, they're Sears and Pennies, and they said, "Wait a second, we have this brand, and why can't we do Best Buy at any address?" In fact, that's probably where I got into the healthcare at any address, Jefferson at any address. So, so I look. I think that I think the key will be not every one of those will make it, but I think Walmart will be a player, CVS will be a player, Amazon will be a player. It's hard to think that Google and Apple won't find some, some niche in healthcare. But the key will be, how do you, as a provider or a traditional healthcare CEO, partner with those folks? instead? Because they're going to need you. And the folks that are willing to get into that early, I think will do pretty well in a true partnership model. So talk a little bit about the partnership model. And so we spoke with, with Rob DiMache, former CFO for UPMC. And he talked about the death of the traditional provider, we, we could say, been overstated as one of the, he believes it's going to come about as death, death by a thousand cuts. It's not that Amazon Care is going to come in and take so much of your population, but Amazon Care is going to come in, Walmart's going to come in, CVS is going to come in, uh, uh, surgery centers are going to come in, so forth and so on, till this this low margin business just gets, uh, gets hammered. Um, and... When you're a traditional provider CEO, how do you bridge that gap? How do you bridge that financial gap and say, okay, it's it's partnerships at this point because the old, hey, we'll just keep doing what we're doing appears to be getting closer to a losing strategy. Right. So look, you used the word inertia early, early on in this discussion. I, I call it risk aversion. And I go around the country telling people, you want the riskiest thing you can do? Nothing. I, I tell boards, the riskiest thing you can do, you want to jump out of a plane without a parachute? Yeah, you just keep working on your inpatient revenue and trying to get 1% market share from your, quote, dinosaur competitor. That's a really, really great strategy for jumping out of the plane without a parachute. Anything else you do, as far as partnering with Walmart or whatever, is, is, is less risky. So, so look, I, I, I'm not as pessimistic as he is because... 
I, I think, again, it'll be the death of some traditional providers that'll have to consolidate. Oh, Jefferson, when I got here in 2013, we were, we were, just nowhere. We were, we were, we were two wow. hospitals with three different boards. We were strategically, we were a great place to give care. That was never a question. But, but one of those fragmented markets in the country. One of those fragmented markets in the country, Penn was laughing at us. You know, everybody was saying, who's going to buy Jefferson? You fast forward, we're 20% larger than Penn. We're 18 hospitals, nine and a half billion dollar company. And I had a board that when I first, the first thing I did, the first thing I did was get out of our 25 year relationship with mainline health, that every one of our insurance products and our $365 million worth of bonding were all owned by that entity. I think our $365 million, I've been there for three months and put into a home equity line because <laughs> we had never been rated and I had to get all new insurance things. And literally the prediction of the, what at that time, JHS folks is, you know, it was like they did their presentation because they were all going to be out of jobs in front of my board. It was like Austin Powers. You listen to Clasco, you will lose a billion dollars. The fact is that I recognized, and again, a lot of it was through my work with Apple, that if all I was going to do is go from being really, really in bad shape to incrementally in less bad shape, that was a really lousy job. And the, the least risky path was to think about what would be obvious 10 years from now and be that leader, not try to... Not try to compete with Penn on Penn's terms. So my first faculty meeting, Bill, I went and said, get me, tell me something really exciting about Jefferson, like, like that I want to invest $150 million. And somebody raised their hand and said, well, we're number two to Penn, but we're better than Temple and Drexel. I said, first of all, opposite of exciting. Second of all, I have no idea if any of that's true or by what parameters. And then somebody else raised their hand and said, President Clasco, if you give us more money for uh, NIH funding and a proton beam, we can get closer to Penn in U.S. News and World Report and NIH funding. And my first comment as president of the faculty meeting was, look, if you want me to get closer to Penn on Penn's terms, that'd be like if the search committee said height and hair were our two most important criteria. I probably would not have applied for this job. And that's when I came up with that model. What if we think totally different? We're a 195-year-old academic medical center thinking like a startup company. And and go, go where that's going. So I, I think that, that to me, that's where my optimism comes. All of us have the brands. If you're a doctor, your patient's going to see you. If you're unwilling to be, to, to be with the future, if you're unwilling to do any of those things, then your patient won't be with you. But the, what your patient ideally would like is that she could stay with you and that you're, do, that you're out, you're closer to home, she can access you in a, in a better way. I always always say we have, when I think about how I can deliver a baby, we have Star Wars technology for individual patients in a Fred Flintstone healthcare delivery system. That part hasn't changed. Yeah. Last two questions. I want to give you a chance to talk about some of the things you're seeing because you're hanging out with some really interesting people, some really fascinating forward-thinking companies. So what are you seeing that's going to be potentially the most impactful or disruptive work that's being done in healthcare today? Yeah, I think what I love is some of the Gen Z and maybe a little older founders that are not afraid to look at the intractable problems. So the companies that I've gotten most excited about are ones that are going right at behavioral health, going right at substance use. Companies like CityBlock, they're going right at the health equity and the most underserved folks, the 5% of people that use 50% of resources. Those things used to be considered dead zones. 
So when you think about behavioral health, it's been a carve out. I, I just can't deal with that as a hospital system. So all of a sudden, when I look at the companies I'm looking at in GC, it's these, these really cool young founders that are saying, no, a combination of tech and humans that can really start to get at those issues. I think the concept of making sure that the tech and the company that I'm creating isn't just making the wealthy healthier. I think more and more things looking at social determinants, predictive analytics, natural language processing, getting out to folks' homes. So that, that, that's what gives me a lot of optimism that, that both those, those folks are founding companies and places like GC and others are saying, this is a company I want to invest in because that's the right place right place to be. And there's just a lot of optimism. I mean, the really cool part, you mentioned uh, the, your last guest. I mean, everybody that, that I, first of all, I'm like, oh, when I'm in a meeting at GC, if you took the five people around me and you added them up, I'm older than, than the combination of those things. So, so it's nice to be around, you know, really smart, creative people that look at me. I get a little tired of being, you're like the grandfather of of tech and healthcare. I said, could we go with father maybe or, <laughs> or older brother, but, you, but be that as it may. You know what's funny about that picture is you represent the old stodgy healthcare's perspective. That, that's what they're looking to you say, hey, can you explain how <laughs> old stodgy healthcare thinks? And the rest of healthcare is looking at you saying, you're, you're, you're so that's far crazy. out of the bounds, yeah. but to them, you're yeah. like, hey, tell us yeah. how they think. Yeah, so, so I mean, look, that's what's funny. Ken Frazier... Moved over to GC also, and he and I talked. And you know, he was—he grew up in an underserved area. Became a lawyer, then he became the CEO of Merck. And now he's working in this environment. Same thing with me. I do over twenty-five hundred babies in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Became the dean of three different medical schools, a couple of CEOs, and it's—it. And now I'm in that interim phase between this and DJing at my assisted living facility. So the ability to really just take a no limits approach. I mean. That's, that's what's really cool, Bill. You and I talked about this a little bit before the podcast, that the ability to be at this point in my career where I can take a no-limits approach and say yes to somebody or no to somebody based on whether or not I think it's going to have an impact or whether or not I can have an impact is, is really, is really a, a nice place to be without the constraints of the ankle weights that a traditional healthcare ecosystem puts on you. Fantastic. We're going to go to the DJ thing. I just want to, so I was born in Easton Hospital, so you didn't deliver any babies at Easton Hospital, did you? Well, I'm going to tell you one really interesting anecdote about Easton Hospital. So one of my last talks to the medical students was, you know, right before I left and I, I, I'm late for a meeting and this medical student comes running out and says, President Clasco, my mom says, I have to talk to you. You know, I'm saying, look, if it's about tuition, you, you need to talk to somebody else. No, you delivered me 31 years ago at Sacred Heart Hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And what's so weird about it is I actually remembered this. This is why the mom had gone, uh, was patient at Easton Hospital. 31 years ago, there weren't a lot of NICUs. There weren't a lot of high-risk obstetricians, especially not in Catholic hospitals. So Easton was a nice community hospital. And she was small enough as a baby that that was going to be considered a non-viable pregnancy. And the mom says, I happen to know there's a Catholic hospital in Allentown that has a NICU and a high-risk obstetric service. Please send me there. So literally, I didn't remember exactly it, but I remembered, 
I remember like, well, yeah, I think I do remember that because at that time it was like one of the smallest babies I delivered. And she said, boy, you look like you're getting pretty emotional. I said, is, is that because of the story? I said, no, it's because I'm looking at you. You're 31 years old. I feel really old. I mean, I, I knew that I probably delivered babies and they weren't five anymore. But when I'm confronting you, it's like, wow. So yes, I do know Easton Hospital. All right. So former DJ, you have been known to put together soundtracks and I guess we call them playlists today. You might still call them soundtracks. What's on the playlist for healthcare today, do you think? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because my new book would be my sixth book is coming out in November. It's called Too Old to Rock and Roll, Too Young to Die. And I'm taking basically 12 songs and and using them as the nidus for basically for healthcare. And uh, so like, yeah, I'll just give you a couple of songs there. Courage to Change is a 2020 song by Sia. And the whole idea is, do we have the courage to change? So that's a chapter. There's a chapter on a song, uh, little, pretty much what we were talking about by Simon Garfunkel called Keep the Customer Satisfied. Just a little bit about uh, consumer. It was on the uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water album. I've been slandered. I've been libeled. I've hear, heard words I never heard in the Bible. That was that song. Chapter four is called Mr. Roboto by Styx. And the lyrics that are, I'm not a robot without emotions. I'm not what you see. Come to help you with your problems so we can be free. I'm not a hero. I'm not a savior. So the concept of wait a second, we spent 50 years trying to get doctors and nurses to work together. Now we're going to have to have doctors and robots. robots. Chapter five is actually this great song from Dream Girls that Jennifer Hudson did called I Am Changing. Look at me, I'm changing, trying every way I can about how hard it is for, for, for healthcare organizations to change. So every Friday I would do a playlist bill for my 50,000 employees. And it really helped during the, remember I, I run a two campus university as president I ran. So during the George Floyd time, it was a great way of having this discussion with my 50,000 very diverse employees. Things like Choice of Colors by Curtis Mayfield. And music creates an opportunity to have a non-angry discussion. But I would also do it in a sort of, when, when we got through the lockdowns, one of the songs that I highlighted was by Roberta Flack, first time ever I saw your face, where people who had to do all their Zoom dating on, on, you know, with people with masks, and now they're actually getting together. Oh, that's what you look like. So it really gave people a chance. And so what started to happen is that through a really tough time, I would probably get 50 suggestions for the Friday playlist from everybody from environmental service workers to chair of neurosurgery that created this sort of fun fun piece we ended up on ellen because they had this uh, the level up challenge for a song and we won it because our nurses were out dancing to level up so that music is the message really helped me when i when i started my career as a dj back in 1978 as somebody as one of the people from gc reminded me he was 25 oh so you, you started as a dj that was when DJs made less than doctors, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pre-Pitbull era. Wow. So will you be DJing the company Christmas party or anything to that effect? I still do a lot of DJing. Oh, I, do I you DJ, really? Wow. I, I DJed the entire Oliver Wyman Health Summit last year virtually. I DJed some stuff for companies like Innovacer. So it's funny because there's a lot of controversy because the Goldman Sachs CEO is DJing at Lollapalooza. He's a DJ. And, um, and they said, 
the DJs are saying he's a lousy DJ. And so I don't ever try to say I'm a great DJ. I said, I'm a really good DJ for a gynecologist. And everybody agrees with that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Dr. Clasco, Stephen, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Love the work that you're doing and uh, look forward to keeping in touch because we really, we didn't touch on education and how that's going to change this next generation. I don't think that it's going to change just because they're digital natives. It's probably the, the whole process needs to change. So there's still a lot well, of stuff to, you, to touch on. I'll leave you with, with one anecdote, Bill. When I started at Jefferson 2013, I gave a talk and um, the guy before me was Austin Goolsby, who was uh, uh, President Obama's uh, head of Co Council of Economic Advisors. And I was billed as the second talk as a futurist in health. And he says, look, the way the economy is going, the two things you don't want to be running for the next 10 years, which is 2013, are academics and healthcare because they're so clueless and they're going to just be totally disrupted. The next period I go, um, well, obviously don't listen to anything I say for the next 45 minutes because I just took a job in academic healthcare in Philadelphia. So obviously I'm a really lousy futurist, according to Austin. <laughs> That's, that That's fantastic. for another podcast. Fantastic. Well, hey, thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. What a great discussion. If you know someone that might benefit from a channel like this, from these kinds of discussions, go ahead and forward them a note. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. Send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our keynote sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris, and Veritas. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.